on Sunday morning, I was thinking about the prophecy update, and this thought has been kind of rolling around in my mind that traced back to King Josiah and Pharaoh Necho, King Josiah, the last great king in the nation of Judah before the Babylonian captivity. They would actually go into captivity, I believe, 22 years after his death. So he's right at the end of the nation of Judah before they go into captivity. And after a great revival that we're going to look at tonight and kind of compare it to some of the things that has happened in our own nation, 13 years after that great revival and the great Passover celebration that they had, so the message came out of this one verse Second Chronicles 35, verse 21. When Josiah showed up, when Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, King Necho, came out, not against Israel, but against the Assyrians, apparently Josiah felt that he needed to help out and to prevent this battle and taking place. And Necho responded to him, and this kind of brought about the whole message, Second Chronicles 35, 21. But he sent messengers to him, so Pharaoh Necho sending word to Josiah, saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come out against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Now that's pretty intense, because you have a pagan king telling uh, king of Judah, and remember the house of Judah and the tribe of Judah that worshiped the Lord God who created the heavens and the earth. You have a pagan king that tells the king of Judah, God commanded me to do this, and if you meddle with me, you're actually meddling with God, and he will destroy you. And I've been thinking a little bit about that meddling, because I believe some of our leaders in our nation today have been doing a bit of meddling in our world. And we're going to look at that, but it really, to be honest with you, the message did not go the direction that I thought it would go when I had that thought on Sunday morning. And I sat down and started putting it together yesterday and finished it today. Uh, it ended up being a little bit of a rehearsing of some of the period, great periods of the United States with just a little glimpse of the meddling that we see going on in our nation today. I believe... I don't need to explain to you how dire the circumstances are in our nation, in the world today. We're living it every day. So I want to really concentrate on perhaps some of the ways that we have gotten off track as a nation by looking at Second Chronicles 34 and 35. And I titled this, Meddling Comes at a Great Cost. And I want to just open us in prayer. Father, as we look at this passage, I just pray, Father, that you would just give me wisdom as I present your word to your church, to us here tonight, Lord, and help us to learn from the Holy Scriptures, these testaments 
testimonies that you have given us, left us, that we should learn thereby. Perhaps, Lord, not make the same mistakes that others have made before us, or perhaps, Lord, helping us to see that we're actually following a very similar path that came about to destroy not only the king of Judah, but ultimately their nation that went into captivity very quickly after the king's death. So give us wisdom, Lord, as we look at this passage. Lord, let it speak to our hearts this evening. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I wasn't planning on looking at uh, chapter 34 or the beginning of chapter 35 in Second Chronicles, but I ended up doing that in my notes, and so I'm going to give us a, really an overview of everything that's going on because I think it helps us to understand a couple of things. That, one, Judah had went off track many years before Josiah ever showed up. Their nation was in trouble before Josiah was even birthed. Number two, even though great revival can come because of a faithful leader within a nation, it may stay the hand of the Lord for a certain time, but judgment still came upon the nation of Judah. And number three, we find that even though Josiah was a good king who did great things for God in his nation, at the end of his life, he meddled in the affairs that were not his own, and it ended up costing him his life. So even... You know, we can live a good life and then kind of go off the deep end toward the end and cause trouble for many around us and ourselves as well. So a lot of good lessons that really come out of Second Chronicles 35 and chapters 34 and 35. As I said, King Josiah was the last good king to rule over the nation of Judah. And his love for the Lord helped lead his nation into one of Judah's greatest revivals. And I'm just going to give us a brief rundown of his life. And it kind of goes like this in verses 1 through 7. And I'm not. There's a lot of verses of Scripture in these two chapters. I'm not going to deal with many of the verses that are here in the chapters, but just kind of highlight a few of these things. So the overall summary of King Josiah's life is found in Second Chronicles 34, verse 2. And God did this with all the kings. He always gave an overall summary of the kings, whether good or evil. He always gave us a summary. Josiah's summary is found in Second Chronicles 34, 2, where it says, He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of his father David, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. That is the overall summary of King Josiah's life. King Josiah was actually eight years old when he was anointed king over Judah. And so he was a boy king. And no doubt, and as we read, if we were going through this on a typical Wednesday night and learning all about this, God surrounded him with some godly men and women that caused him to be raised knowing the ways of God. And actually, as a young man, as a teenager, he's already king at eight years old. But the Word of God tells us in verse 
3 that when he was 16 years old, Josiah began to seek the God of his father, David. No doubt um, from childhood, he learned the ways of God. He learned the Holy Scripture. And as king, the requirements from Deuteronomy is that every king had to write a copy from the book and the word of God. This would have been difficult, though, for Josiah. He kind of missed a step that was required by God for the kings. Typically, a king was to take the copy that of the word of God, the Pentateuch, and the first five books of the Old Testament for us that sat in the temple there in the temple of God and the king one of his first duties according to the book of Deuteronomy was to make a copy of the word for himself to read from it all the days of his life and as we'll discover the word of God has been hidden and Josiah had no word to make a copy from and it kind of plays out the events that would transpire afterwards but there were godly men and women who surrounded him and he knew of God and he began at 16 as a teenager to seek the God of his father, David. I love that. Never too young. Eight years old, he becomes king. 16, he began to seek the God of his father, David, in a sense, I believe, for himself, not learning what's being taught him, but he decided this is something I need to know. And this is a relationship that I need to have with God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And then the word of God tells us in his 12th year, when he was 20, Josiah began to fulfill a 350-year-old prophecy that was spoken of him by name, calling him out by name 350 years before he was even born. He began to purge Judah and Israel of all the high places of the various images that the people worshipped. The prophecy is found in 1 Kings 13, verses 1 and 2, where not even in Judah, the prophecy was given to the first king of Israel, Jeroboam, who created a false gods for the nation of Israel to worship and a man of God went up from Judah to Bethel where one of these false idols, altars, was set up by Jeroboam. And 1 Kings 13, 1 and 2 says, Behold, a man of God went up from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned upon you. And that's what he began to do in his twelfth year as king when he was twenty years old. Josiah broke down the altars of Baal, and cut down the altars of incense and the carved and molded images, ground them into dust. He scattered their ashes on the graves of those who had worshipped them. And then he burnt the bones of the priest who had sacrificed to these gods upon the 
pagan altars, and the reason he burned the bowl, burn, <laughs> I can't get it out, burn the bones, so he didn't kill the priests and then burn their bones, it appears, he may have, but it seems like he took the bones of priests who had already died, ground up and burned their bones to desecrate the altars that they could not be used again. So he kind of destroyed the area for any kind of pagan worship. But he did this in Judah, which, hey, he's a Judean king. Why not? This is my own country. He did it in Jerusalem, which is horrible to think that they had these false gods there. But he also did it among the remnants of the northern kingdom of Israel. By this time, Israel has already went into captivity uh, by the Assyrians. And yet the altars of worship that they set up, that Jeroboam set up some 350 years before, the altar in Bethel and that of in Dan, he set up two locations for people to worship. They still existed. And Lily and I, being in Israel only one time, and what a trip. If you can go, it's worthwhile. Maybe someday we'll just have to wait for Jesus to give us the tour. But we sat on the ruins of the temple that Jeroboam built in the tribe of Dan in the northern uh, kingdom there, way up north in Israel, close to Syria. So even the temple in Dan, though it doesn't exist as a temple, it's just ruins today. The ruins are there. Historical evidence that these things were true. When he was 26 years old, in verses 8 through 14 of Second Chronicles 34, we find the biggest change came upon Josiah's life and his nation. And it began with his commission to repair the temple. Being faithful to the king's command, the men delivered the funds that they had collected from the remnant of Israel and from all of Judah and Benjamin and put the funds, I like these verses, so I'll read them, uh, picking up in Second Chronicles 34, in verse 10, it says, And they put the funds in the hands of the workmen who had oversight of the house of the Lord. And they gave it to the workmen who worked in the house of the Lord to repair and restore the house. And they, in turn, gave it to the craftsmen, to the builders. And the men did the work faithfully. I've always liked these verses. Of course, I'm a, a tradesman from way back when I was uh, just a teenager beginning to work in the trades. And now I know I'm a pastor today, but I've still got the heart of a tradesman in me. And I love these verses because knowing that God loves those who faithfully do the work that he has gifted them to do, even bricklayers as I was, carpenters, laborers, or as verse 13 says, of all who did the work of any kind of service. And I like that because of any kind of service. What has God gifted us to do? He's gifted us with capabilities, with abilities that have come from him. So let's use those things for the service of God. So the offering that they collected to help rebuild and remodel and restore the temple must have triggered something. And Hilkiah, he was the high priest, 
And apparently he checked the offering box. We have an agape box. They had an offering box there in the temple. We read of such an offering box in Second Chronicles 24 in a different situation. But we actually learned that there was a box for the collecting of funds for the temple there in Second Chronicles 24. And here in Second Chronicles 34, many years later, the box is still there. But when Hilkiah, the high priest, opened the chest, he discovered the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Today we call this the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Old Testament, that of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it appears before Josiah's reign, all the copies of the Pentateuch, have been destroyed or misplaced. And thankfully, some unnamed priest or Levite hid a copy. And I don't know if this is the book that God gave to Moses. I'm sure over time, I mean, no doubt they tried to keep the book that God gave to Moses, but many years have went by, so it could have been a, a newer copy and not the exact same book that came from God to Moses when he was there on Mount Sinai. But the point here, this discovery teaches us that even the offering box hadn't been checked for many years. The book had been there the whole time. So what's that tell us about the nation of Judah? No wonder the temple needed repairs. No one was coming. No one was giving. So much so that they didn't even check the box anymore. It really reveals the great depths of Judah's apostasy at this time. So after Hilkiah showed the book to the scribe named Shaphan, verses 15 through 21, he carried the book to the king and he reported, Shaphan reported on the work of the temple and then he showed Josiah the book and he read it to him. And when Josiah heard the word, words of God's law, the Word of God tells us that he tore his clothes in grief and in mourning. In Second Chronicles 34, 21, knowing that great wrath and the great wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the Word of God to do according to all that is written in the book. He heard the words of the Lord and he said, we haven't been living like this. Now remember, I said, as king, one of the first duties that Josiah was supposed to do was make a copy of the Word of God and keep it for himself and read it all the days of his life. But apparently there was no copy for him to make. And so all he had was oral transit traditions that had been passed on from uh, the earlier church or leaders there in Judah. And so Josiah, in verses 22 through 28, he ordered the high priest, his counselors, to inquire for the Lord for him. And for those who remained in Judah and in Israel for the words of God's law. And so they found a prophetess. Her name was Hilda. She was the keeper of the wardrobe. So she had a job, but she also communicated the word of God to others. And she confirmed that calamity was indeed going to come upon their nation. 
and their people because of the sins of their forefathers. And she said, 2 Chronicles 34, 23 through 26. And this is what she said. And she answered them and said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. And all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burn incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and not be quenched. And as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because, verse 27, your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants. And you humbled yourself before me, and you tore your clothes, and you wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord, verse 28. Surely I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to the grave, your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I shall bring on this place and its inhabitants. And so they brought the word back to the king. So God stayed his hand during the reign of Josiah because Josiah's heart was tender toward the Lord. Because he, when he heard the word of the God, the word of God being read and the curses there that were found in God's word. And he knew that his forefathers and his people were not walking in the ways of the Lord. He tore his clothes. He wept before the Lord. He sought to hear the word of God and what would come of their nation. So God stayed his hand during the reign of Josiah. And in verses 29 through 33, it takes us through the rest of chapter 34 of Second Chronicles. Afterwards, the king gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, both small and great. They went up to the temple where he had the book of the law read before all the people. So now he shared God's word with the whole nation. And then verses 31 through 33, it says, And he made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, to keep his commandments, his testimonies, his statutes, with all of his heart and with all of his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And he made all who were present to take a stand, and all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God. So as the leader of Judah, as the king, the king first made a commitment to God, and then he caused the people to follow his example by making similar commitments to the Lord God. And it tells us as it closes out, it tells us that the people of Israel were, were diligent to serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers. So revival came to the land. Now it's important for us to remember before Josiah became king at eight years old, Josiah's grandfather Manasseh and his father Ammon 
whose combined reigns lasted a total of 57 years, were wicked kings who did not worship the Lord God of Israel. Since Josiah was 26 years old when the temple remodel began, considering that he became king when he was eight years old, this tells us that the temple had been in ruin and neglect for about 75 years before that remodel project began. No wonder Josiah had to encourage the priests in their duties in the service of the house of the Lord in preparations for the coming Passover, which we'll read about in chapter 35. So it had me thinking about the United States and uh, the work of God in our own land. We can trace our country's founding back to 1620. I will not say 1619. I can say it, but I don't agree with the 1619 project. But 1620, when the pilgrims landed at Cape Cod, before they even went ashore, the pilgrims had tried to go. In fact, they um, had indentured themselves to a man named Winston, I believe was his name, for a period of seven years. It took them 20 years to pay off the debt, ultimately. But they were supposed to go to Jamestown, like everyone else. But the winds kept prevailing against them, and they could not go south. And they finally decided when they found a restful place there in a natural harbor at Cape Cod, they decided that this must be where God wants us to be. So before they got off the Mayflower, they made a compact together. It's actually known as the Mayflower Compact. They coveted it together. that worship would be at the heart of their community, that they would follow God. They made a voluntary contract and formed a civil government, and very similar to what the Declaration of Independence would become. It was the first time free men made a covenant together rules and laws that they might live by. But God was at the heart of that covenant. And God has been at the heart of this nation since our founding. And several times there have been great periods of revival. And I believe this really plays in plays into uh, much of what our nation had become. Not really what it is right now, but in the glory days, we might say, of our nation. God was always at work. And the first great awakening was a movement that swept through the colonies from 1730 to 1740. So about 110 years after the pilgrims landed there at Cape Cod, a revival broke out in the colonies. It was the first major event that all the colonies shared, helping to break down the walls that divided them and helping to bring them to the Lord with great evangelists like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and many others. And the first great awakening, history says, from 1730 to 1740. The second great awakening... Now we're moving into about 200 years 
after the pilgrims arrived there at Cape Cod from the 1800s to 1840. It brought a large number of people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, fueled a rapid growth among the denominations, many of the churches like the Congregationalists, the Anglicans, the Methodists, the Baptists, rose up at that time. Some of the great preachers of those days, Charles Finney, Lehman Beecher, Barton Stone, and Peter Cartwright, and James B. Finley. There was a camp meeting during this time in 1802 down in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, where 20,000 people showed up. One person who was there wrote of that occasion and said, the noise was like the roar of Niagara, and the vast sea of humans being seemed to be agitated as, as if by a storm. I counted seven ministers all preaching at one time, some on stumps and others on wagons. Some of the people were singing, others were praying, some were crying for mercy. That was part of the second great awakening. The third great awakening came in 1857 to 1859, where 10,000 people in New York City alone gathered daily, even left work that they could pray. And there was really nothing unique about the original prayer meeting. There was a man who was 48 years old. He was a businessman who was also a missionary for the North Dutch Reformed Church, his name was Jeremiah Lamphere, and he began this uh, prayer meeting on September 25th, 1857. Two days after he began his prayer meeting, September 25th, 1857, the Bank of Pennsylvania failed. And in a few days, so many people were attending the prayer meeting that they began to meet daily. Charles Finney had once declared of New York that it seemed to be on such a wave of prosperity as to be the death of revival effort. But then, in that same year, October 10th, 1857, the New York stock market crashed, putting many stock brokers and their clerks out of work. And soon the Fulton Street prayer meeting overflowed to the nearby John Street Methodist Church. Financial panic seemed to trigger an awakening that lasted for six months. 10,000 people were gathering daily to pray there throughout New York. In Chicago, we need this in Chicago, at the Metropolitan Theater, 2,000 people a day would come for prayer. In St. Louis, Kentucky, thousands crowded each morning into the Masonic Temple of all places. And overflow meetings were held all around the city. In Cleveland, Ohio, about 2,000 people each day were meeting. And in St. Louis, all the churches were filled up months on end. And some have said in the more recent history that the revivals that swept through our land in the late 1960s and 70s was a fourth great awakening. I believe that God did stay his hand for a while when the hippies were all coming to faith, Calvary Chapel movement being birthed at that time, and even this building and the property that we're on, originally 
and Assemblies of God Church, I, I believe. And the church was originally called the Gospel Ranch, and it was birthed at that same time. But like in the days of Josiah, as well as the great awakenings of our own nation, many of these revivals birthed what came after were seasons of prosperity and even times of war. And it seems that when the world became crashing down upon many of the people, this caused people to look up for God to be their help and their hope. And we're kind of in one of those periods where things are definitely crashing down financially, but also war is kind of uh, lurking, it seems. But are people looking to God for their help and their hope? So we pick up in chapter 35, verses 1 through 19, and the great Passover being described to us here, again, summarizing some of this. In verse 3, it tells us that Josiah commanded the Levites to put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It shall no longer be a burden to your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people. So apparently during the years of the temple's neglect, The Levites had hidden the Ark of the Covenant. To this day, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. Some say that when the time is right, it will be revealed. Apparently, this is kind of what happened. The king had to command them, put the Ark in the temple where it belongs. No longer let it be a burden on your shoulders. You instead serve the Lord and his people. And they did, no doubt, a great service for the people of God by having the Ark of the Covenant, making sure it was protected during that time, keeping it from being desecrated or destroyed by Manasseh or Ammon, the evil kings that came before Josiah. But now the Ark could safely rest in the temple, and the Levites were free to serve the people, to minister in their divisions according to the guidelines that were given to them by David and Solomon. So in verses 6 through 9, we find that they had a Passover celebration that was unlike any that had been before them. The Passover lambs and goats that were to be slain at twilight on the 14th day of the first month, according to Exodus 12, verse 6, was such a great undertaking, considering that the Word of God tells us that there were 37,600 lambs and goats for the Passover and an additional 3,800 cattle for burnt peace and thanksgiving offerings given at that time during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So the Levites helped the priest in this area. In verse 10, it tells us, So the service was prepared. The priest stood in their place, the Levites in their division, according to the king's command. And the priests and the Levites, verses 10 through 19, having sanctified themselves, prepared for the Passover. And the Levites fulfilled the duties in order to help the priests serve in their roles. So it was important for the Levites to do their part. As we read, And the priests sprinkled the blood with their hands while the Levites skinned the animals, in verse 11. Everyone was busy attending to their duties that the Levites prepared the portion of the Passover for themselves, the priests, the singers, the gatekeepers, 
And it kind of reminds us in church life. And I love it when the people of God come together to serve together, easing the hands of our church leaders, our lay leaders coming alongside. God has given us each a role in which we can serve his church. In 2 Kings 23, 30, 2 Kings 23:25. Now before him, there was no king like him, no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. That is said of King Josiah. And the nation of Judah thrived under the reign of King Josiah because He prepared his heart before the Lord. Revival broke out in their land. And it was a period of revival that was unlike any other revival that had happened before or after during their nation. Now we've seen this in our own nation. I'm thinking about the 20th century specifically. We've had some great wars, World War I. The Americans had initially, there in World War I, preferred to stay out of it, to be neutral. They saw the European conflict as something Europe needed to deal with. And it wasn't really our concern. But that all changed in May of 1915. A German U-boat sank a British ocean liner, killing over a thousand people with 120 Americans on board. And then February, February 1917, the U.S. intercepted a telegram from the Germans to the Mexican government saying that if you fight with us, we'll return the land, Texas, California, New Mexico, we'll give it back to you if you'll fight with us. So these actions kind of helped that declaration of war that the United States entered in April 6th in 1917. They entered into World War I, providing much of the needed troops for the war effort and cost of millions of lives around the world. President Woodrow Wilson He used the phrase that pretty much is still somewhat used to this day. And I think it's being used with the Ukrainian war today. So this is what he said. The world must be safe for democracy. So that phrase, democracy, we're going to come back to that toward the end of the message. Although the Americans, they being officially involved there just over a year, There's more than 53,000 who lost their lives, American soldiers, in that conflict. And throughout American history, Bibles have been distributed to our soldiers during the time of war. And often messages were given by the leaders. And so President Wilson used this time in the World War I era Bible His general, John Pershing, he's put in the command of the forces of the United States. And in the front of that Bible, 
he wrote this, in the very beginning of what he wrote there, read this way, to the American soldier. Aroused against a nation waging war in violation to all Christian principles, our people are fighting in the cause of liberty. Hardship will be your lot, but trusting God will give you comfort. Temptation will befall you, but the teachings of our Savior will give you strength. Let your valor as a soldier and your conduct as a man be an inspiration to your comrades and an honor to your country. Quite the words written to our soldiers there in 1917. And may the Lord restore to our military godly leaders who would not be ashamed to share their faith with the men and women who serve in our military here today in the United States. In World War II, another time of war for our nation, I believe it helped to shape our nation in the 20th century. On September 3rd, 1939, President Roosevelt addressed the nation with one of his famous fireside chats, stating that his resolve was to remain neutral. No good old U.S. want to stay neutral. And so he had this declaration, his desire to stay neutral. But that changed, as we know, December 7th, 1941, when uh, Japanese came and attacked Pearl Harbor, which Roosevelt said would be a date that would live in infamy. President Roosevelt stated that with confidence in our armed forces, with an unbounding determination of our people, we will gain an inevitable triumph, so God help us. Now, he had Bibles that were made for the soldiers at that time. And the president, according to what I read today, had these Bibles made that had a shield over the Bible. The Bible was uh, made to fit in the pop pocket of the soldier, and they were called the Heart Shield Bible. And these Bibles were used during World War II, designed to fit in the soldier's front pocket, to be a covering for his heart. And that Bible did stop many bullets for several soldiers. In the back of the Bible, there were psalms and hymns, including My Country, Tizithi, America the Beautiful, the Star Spangled Banner. And President Roosevelt wrote this, as the commander-in-chief, I take pleasure in commending the reading of the Bible to all who serve in the armed forces of the United States. Throughout all the centuries, men of many faiths and diverse origins have found in the sacred book words of wisdom, counsel, and inspiration. It is a foundation of strength and now, as always, an aid in attaining the highest aspiration of the human soul. So at that time, our president saying, read God's word. It will give you strength and comfort for your soul. And truly, uh, that Bible that they called the heart shield Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ becomes that shield for us. In Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, today we're learning our military under President Joe Biden is 
actually shrinking to the smallest number since World War II. And they're blaming it on many things, economic hardships, uh, soldiers being driven out of the forces, refusing to take COVID-19 vaccinations. And the Pentagon press briefing this week, this week, said that the Army budget for 2023, this is what they said, they would temporarily reduce our strength from 485,000 soldiers to 476,000 in 2022, 473,000 in 2023. So shrinking back on our size of military. Military Times reports that this could leave the service at its smallest size since 1940, when it had just over 269,000 troops. So as the conflict with Russia and Ukraine continues, we have threats of China coming against Taiwan. I think it would be wise for our nation to stay vigilant in their preparedness, but more importantly, in their faith toward God. So what happened post-World War II is that there was a strong economic growth during that time. Uh, industry quickly converted back their factories, producing cars and new, new other uh, products for the people of the United States. Housing boomed. It, it, actually, I was at the very end of the baby boom. Uh, work was good for the people. Gross national product increased from 200 million in 1940 to 300 million in 1960, there was, or 1950, uh, and more than 500 million in 1960. And then we had these post-war bursts known as the baby boom. I'm right at the tail end of that. But we've had these great depressions, recessions, 13 of them since the Great Depression that began in August of 1929 and lasted until June of 1938. There have been 13 recessions in the United States during that time. And some people say a recession is just a normal cycle of the business life. Eventually we grow too large, we have to cut back. Now we are at a point where we're they deemed uh, the Great Recession, beginning December of 2007, lasting until June of 2009, one year, six months. It was the longest recession that we've had since the Great Depression. But we're currently on amid the 13th recession, and time will tell the length and severity of what it might be. So the Great Recession, it slowed our recovery was the slowest recovery. People were out of work, and this all around 2000, mid-2007, 8, and 9. And we've recovered since that time. Now we're coming into a season like that again. Oftentimes, in times of war, in times of uh, pandemics, We've seen a change. I've seen a change. I've been here as I said last Wednesday, um, 23 years now as the pastor. 
And I've been here when 9-11 took place in 2001 as the pastor. And it was a Tuesday, and we gathered for church that night for prayer. And, and the church filled up for several months. Churches filled up for several months after that time. And then we had uh, wars and conflicts in Iraq and Iran. Not Iran yet, Iraq and Af Afghanistan. <laughs> Iran's on the plate. But um, less people kind of concerned about that. Historically, times of war and economic hardships have caused people to turn to God for their help. But now we're not seeing that so much. And so the king, he meddles. We finish out. After Judah had this great revival, now King Josiah is 39 years old. The revival took place when he was 26. And I've already mentioned this, but King of Egypt, Necho, came to fight against uh, the Assyrians at Karshemesh by the Euphrates. And Josiah, they... The king of Egypt apparently traveled through Israel to get there. It was one of the easier trips to go through Israel or go around Israel on the other side in a very dry and arid area. You'd have to go through Jordan and stuff like that. So he came in a place where Josiah was able to come and meet him for battle. And the king, as I read earlier in verse 21, said, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house which I have made war, and that would be the Assyrians. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest I destroy you. One of the things we discover that Josiah did meddle. In verse 22 it said, He would not turn his face from him, disguised himself, we read about another king of Judah disguising himself. Both died in battle. It wasn't a good tactic. Hey, let's act like we're a regular soldier, and let's go get killed. Uh, that's what happened to Josiah and this other king as well. He did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. And so he came out to fight in the valley of Megiddo. So Megiddo is north in Israel. It's a very flat plain in northern Israel, about uh, three miles long and one mile wide. Napoleon looked over this area of Megiddo, and he proclaimed it as one of the best battlefields in the world, but also one of the most bloodiest battlefields. Because if Rome or Babylon wanted to go attack Egypt, they would shortcut through Israel and they would all have to travel through Megiddo to get there. It is also going to be a place of the battle of Armageddon in the future days of Gog and Magog. So a coming battlefield as well. So at this time, Assyria had become weak and Babylonian was ready to conquer them and destroy them. Egypt came out against Assyria at this time, but just... Josiah tried to counter the attack, and it ended up costing his life. Now, the interesting thing is that it doesn't tell us that Josiah inquired of the Lord. He just sounds like he got stubborn. 
This is a guy that led his whole nation into revival, which reminds us that though we can do th great things for God, if we don't stay faithful, if we don't stay in tune with God, we may end up messing up big time. Josiah messed up big time. And he had the means to understand the word of the God. He could have inquired of a prophet or a prophetess as he did in times past. And the high priest carried the Urim and the Thummim. He could have inquired of the Lord. But it tells us in verses 23, down through the remainder of verse 25, the archer shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servant, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of the chariot, put him in the second chariot that he had, brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and was buried. And all of Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. And all to this day, all the singing men and singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel. Indeed, they were written in the, lament, in the laments. So he was such a great and faithful king. He had a horrible end. But Judah and Jerusalem mourned his death. The prophet Jeremiah wrote great lamentations concerning Josiah. They sang songs concerning him over 150 years later. When First and Second Chronicles were written, they were still telling about this time. And it went on to say, the last two verses of chapter 35... Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness according to what was written in the law of the Lord, his deeds from first to last. Indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Proverbs 26:17 says, He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. <laughs> I used to pet my dog on her ears, but... You know, in the Bible, they, they weren't really talking about pets for their dogs back then. It was a dangerous thing to grab a dog by an ear. And I believe the U.S. has been doing a bit of meddling in the affairs of other nations. I also believe, as Jesus foretold of wars and rumors of wars, right now a major conflict happening in Russia against Ukraine. It's entered today. It's 148th day. And I'm reluctant for our country to be involved in this conflict, though we are very involved. I'm also concerned for the great loss of life and suffering of the innocence that's taken place. I know personally no missionaries ministering to the Ukrainians over there in Europe, in Hungary, in areas like that, in Poland. My friend that I went to the School of Ministry was a missionary in Poland for 17 years, he left and went to, uh, can't think of where he went. He ended up in a couple of different places. Now he is in Georgia, not the uh, state of Georgia, but the country of Georgia, ministering. But um, his daughter was basically raised in Poland, and right now she's in Poland, a young 20-year-old girl ministering with a team there of Ukrainian refugees. So pretty cool. So in the last days, we looked at this in our last few prophecy updates three months ago, maybe in Ezekiel 38, that Gog and Magog of Rosh, 
Meshach and Tubal. And altogether, we learned of several nations that would come together against Israel in the last days. Right now, Vladimir Putin is meeting with Iran and Turkey, bringing them together this week. Something that the Bible prophesied would happen in the last days, this coalition of these nations. And right now, maybe perhaps our meddling over there. And they, in the United States, I'm not talking about the wars taking place now. As soon as the Soviet Union fell in December 25th of 1991, the U.S., before the end of the year, was already involved in Ukraine. They got right in there. So they've been involved for quite a while. And these countries now coming together, Russia, Iran, and Turkey, all prophesied in Scripture, pretty interesting. Could it be that the United States meddling in the affairs of other nations to bring about what President Wilson said at the beginning of World War I, the world must be safe, made safe for democracy? And yet when the United States tries to bring democracy into other nations... They are missing the four great revivals, the great awakenings in the time of Christ. Uh, 400 years of our nation here, it's all missing. So I don't think what happened here in the United States could rightly be duplicated anywhere else because they're lacking the spiritual foundation and faith in Jesus Christ to bring about such a nation that we have. So what do we do? How do we take this home? Well, prophecy concerning Josiah was, he was named, as I said, 350 years before his birth. And we might be thinking, I, I can definitely say this. Nobody prophesied that there was going to be a John Pinnell 350 years ago. <laughs> and you could probably say, yeah, me too, nobody. But perhaps... Many have prayed over us before we were born. Our parents, a parent maybe, a loved one, other loved ones, before we even took our first breath. Second, God has been actively involved in our lives even before our first heartbeat. In fact, Jesus has you here to remind you of his great love for you. Secondly, Josiah's faith story. He was a very young prince in a very troubling time. As I said, because of his grandfather and his father's disobedience, the temple had pretty much been in disrepair for 75 years before that remodel took place. And perhaps there has been no greater season of troubling times in our lifetime than what we see happening in our nation and around the world right now. It's kind of much like what the Lord described in the last days would be. Even though there were troubling times, God brought about a revival because a young man who was named king at eight years old, at 16 began to seek the Lord his God, and at 20 began to do the work of God in his nation. We can do that no matter the age we are. We can begin, you know, all we have to do is begin to seek the Lord our God and then begin to do the work that God calls us to do. In the steps of a good king, we find that in each stage of Josiah's life, his love for God continued to grow until his whole 
country followed his example of faith. It shows us the importance of godly leaders who are willing to walk, to keep, and to do all that God commands them with all their heart and soul. When you find such a leader, attach yourself to them that you might become an example of faith to others as well. I did this, Lily and I did this uh, when we were in our 30s. It's why we went to California that I could attend the school of ministry. We found such a leader in Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Costa Mesa, and we attached ourselves, in a sense, to learn. And finally, of the last seven kings who reigned over Judah, only Josiah was a king who loved the Lord his God with all of his heart and with all of his soul, with all his might. And still, Josiah could not undo the evil that his grandfather Manasseh and also his father Ammon had done against the Lord. 22 years after his death, Jerusalem would fall. Although Josiah did not know how much time his nation had before their fall, he so loved God and served God in his lifetime that his nation came into one last revival of faith. And the people followed the Lord their God in the whole life of King Josiah. We don't know how much time we got until the Lord returns. But may we love and live for Jesus in such a way that we might help bring revival to our family, our friends, our acquaintances, our nation. A revival that the world so desperately needs. Josiah was one of the last good kings that ruled over Judah until the coming, of course, of Jesus Christ. And although nations will meddle in the affairs of others, may we look to the coming of our Savior Jesus and share of his great love with others. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that we learn something tonight, or at least we were reminded of some things tonight. Help us to be like Josiah and the many others that followed during his reign as king. People who had a heart for God. Help us to be such a people that perhaps, Lord, revival would break out in this church that was spread into our community, into our county, into our state, into our nation, throughout the world. Father, let that be our prayer. Rather than meddling in the affairs of people that we have no business meddling in, help us, Lord, keep our focus upon you. In the days that you've planted us here upon this earth, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. I do pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.